Hello and welcome to Battlecast, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and today we're opening up the Book of Death. Just exactly where we left off, with Colonel Moore and his men surrounded by thousands of North Vietnamese regulars itching to help the Americans answer the eternal mystery of life. What happens when you die? But before we can get to that, I've got to thank Jim from Redding, California, and Chuck and Hazel from Missoula, Montana, for buying us around. I also want to thank everybody who's written in, telling me how much they appreciate and love the show. Thank you. Now, if you want to buy us around, head over to thebattlecast.com and hit that Make a Donation button. I also need to tell you that this is part two of an ongoing series. You can find part one in the immediately preceding episode. But if you like slicing into the middle of the cake, grab a knife. But now, like always, it's death, it's blood, it's pain, it's Battlecast. Okay, so let's pick up where we left off the other day. Christian Appy provides a great summary of the lead-up to the Battle of Yijong, so I'll just quote him, quote, In November 1965, General William Westmoreland, the commander of U.S. forces in Vietnam, ordered the 1st Cav to seek and destroy three regiments of North Vietnamese troops in the Yijong River Valley west of Pleiku. What followed was a month of intense combat, the first time in the war U.S. forces clashed with major units of northern troops, the People's Army of Vietnam. In scale and duration, it was one of the largest and most conventional campaigns of the war. While helicopters played a crucial role in moving infantrymen into the field extracting wounded and bringing in replacements, they did not render the terrain irrelevant, nor could they prevent American infantry units from getting pinned down in long and devastating ambushes. Perhaps the most surprising aspect of the Yijong battle from the perspective of the American command was the willingness of enemy troops to fight in force and sustain contact for days at a time. Most previous combat had involved brief firefights between small units. It had been largely a guerrilla war of snipers and hit-and-run ambushes. American commanders were preoccupied with the challenge of finding an enemy to engage. Most patrols came up empty. Thus, when hundreds of North Vietnamese troops massed themselves in the field to fight the Americans, Westmoreland saw it as a welcome opportunity. Finally, it seemed, the enemy had decided to fight it out on terms favorable to the Americans. At last, the United States could bring to bear the full force of its colossal power, including fighter jets, artillery, gunships, and B-52 bombers, end quote. And all of that colossal power is going to be unleashed in today's show, bombing your eardrums, sending audio waves, of noisome pain into your oral canal. Now, if you remember from last month, there's a large group of Americans comprising about 450 men set up in an all-around perimeter defense, basically a circle surrounding a large landing zone. However, a much smaller group of Americans, about the size of a platoon, are cut off and separated by hundreds of yards from the main American force. The cutoff platoon is under the command of the aptly named Sergeant Savage. Both groupings are surrounded by more than 2,000 North Vietnamese regulars and have fought throughout the night, the smaller platoon-sized grouping experiencing horrendous attacks throughout the same night. In the morning, Colonel Moore was again determined to push to the cutoff men and rescue them. That's just what happened when Don sent his pink fingers slicing through the night. Ten minutes after Don, Moore sent out reconnaissance forces probing towards Sergeant Savage's men. They hadn't moved 20 yards when they were greeted with small arms fire from well-concealed North Vietnamese positions. The North Vietnamese had worked like beavers throughout the night to construct ambushes for the Americans they knew would be coming in the morning. The push to the cut-off platoon already looked like it was going to be a bloodbath for the Americans. 
The reconnaissance patrols pulled back to the American perimeter, but the communists didn't stay where they were. They followed the Americans in, crawling on their hands and knees to get close to the landing zone perimeter. Soon, in spite of heavy American artillery and aircraft fire, the North Vietnamese reached the foxhole line. John Cash picks up the story, quote, the situation grew worse for the men on the front line as the sun slowly peaked across the sky. Suddenly, two North Vietnamese soldiers appeared 40 meters to the front of the command post. Captain Bob Edwards stood up and tossed a fragmentation grenade at them, then fell with a bullet in his back. At 7.15, seriously wounded but still conscious, Edwards asked for reinforcements. Moore directed Company A to send a platoon. Company C's command group was now pinned down by an enemy automatic weapon that was operating behind an anthill just forward of the foxhole line. John Arrington, Edwards' executive officer, had rushed forward from the battalion command post at Colonel Moore's order when Edwards was wounded. As Arrington lay prone receiving instructions from Captain Edwards, he was shot in the chest. Lieutenant Franklin, realizing that both his commanding officer and the executive officer had been hit, left his third platoon position and began to crawl towards the command group. He was then hit and wounded seriously. Almost at the same time that the message from Edwards asking for assistance reached the battalion command post, the enemy also attacked the Company D sector in force near the mortar emplacements. The battalion was now being heavily attacked from two different directions, end quote. Captain Edwards remembered the climax of this morning fight like this, quote, Lieutenant Arrington made it to my command post, and a few minutes later he was hit and wounded. He was worried that he'd been hurt bad, and he told me to be sure to tell his wife that he loved her. I thought, doesn't he know I'm badly wounded too? I ain't going to tell anybody nothing. I'm going to be talking to St. Peter in five minutes. He was hit in the arm, and the bullet passed into his chest, and razor sliced the side of his lung. He was in pain, suffering silently. He also caught some shrapnel from an M79 grenade launcher. The North Vietnamese were firing into the trees above us. It was raining death on us. He was being transformed into a human pincushion. You could see blood seeping from all his little wounds. It didn't pour out in streams like in movies. It seeped out the way wine blots across a tablecloth. End quote. Clinton Poley was on the battle line, and this is what he saw. Quote, when I got up, something hit me real hard in the back of my neck, knocked my head forward, and my helmet fell plunk in a foxhole. The helmet reminded me of a fat possum wriggling into its den. A bullet had caught me in the back of my favorite head. I put a bandage on it and retrieved my helmet to help hold it on. I looked up again and saw four Vietnamese with carbines, their faces contorted in violent hatred, running at me from the right. They were just a few yards away. Then I heard an American scream, a terrible scream of violent primordial scream another one of us had been hit in quote meanwhile a platoon of reinforcements began to make its way across the landing zone this is the large open area in the middle of the american fighting position all right so you have a circle and one platoon of reinforcements is crossing the open ground okay they're going to help company c which is in serious trouble even as they walked behind the perimeter the platoon of course came under heavy fire and two americans fell dead. These were Company C's reinforcements, and they were already getting chewed up before they even arrived where they were needed. Still, the heavy fighting went on. A sergeant took a round in his gut, but kept on fighting anyway. Mortars and rockets walked up and down the American perimeter and landing zone. Anyone who moved towards Company C drew heavy fire. Another American soldier was killed and many more wounded. At the same time, one American refused to be cowed by the heavy fire. As the men around him made love to the dirt in their foxholes, this one man covered 54 yards. He often dropped to his knees in a classic shooting stance and shot more than 10 North Vietnamese with his M16 as he made 
made his way across the death field. To put it mildly, both the Americans and the Vietnamese were dealing out death that morning. Think about that the next time you're anxious about meeting or seeing a girl you like. Much better to get shot down by a beautiful woman than take a rocket-propelled grenade in the chest, believe me. James Comer had been working his machine gun for more than an hour, an eternity in most combat situations, and then he heard something plop down in the ground next to him. It was a grenade. What else, right? Comer takes up the story like this, quote, A stick-handled grenade landed in front of my foxhole. I hollered out, Get down! And kicked it away a little bit with my foot. It went off. I was close to running out of ammo, and then the gun jammed on me. There was a cloud of dust and smoke, and we started moving to our left. That's when I took a round in my chest. I hit the ground like a sledgehammer. It actually knocked the breath out of me. I fell down so hard, end quote. Specialist Vieira was there, and this is what he saw, quote, The enemy was all over. There were hundreds of them walking around for five minutes. It seemed to me like five hours, man. They were shooting and machine gunning our wounded and laughing like drunken frat boys, enjoying their privilege of victory, happily giving death. I knew they'd kill me if they saw I was alive, and when they got near to me, I played dead. I kept my eyes open. I stared at a small tree. I knew that dead men had their eyes open. God knows I'd seen enough. Then one of the North Vietnamese came up and kicked me. I flopped over. He must have thought I was dead. There was blood running out of my mouth, my arms, my legs. I must have looked like a seeping sponge of murder. He took my watch and my pistol and walked away. They stripped all our weapons. I remember the artillery, the bombs, the napalm everywhere. Super close to me. Too close. So close, you could feel it like when your feet get burned when you put them too close to a fire on a late winter night. The bomb shook the very ground underneath me, but it got my enemies too, and I was thankful for it, like a second Samson, end quote. Colonel Hal Moore later described the battlefield at this time with these words, quote, The din of battle was unbelievable. Rifles and machine guns and mortars and grenades rattled, banged and boomed their sounds intermingling and echoing like a herd of carnivorous dinosaurs. Combined, their sounds became preternatural, shaking the soles of your feet and vibrating your lungs themselves. Two batteries of 105mm howitzers, 12 big guns located 5 miles away, were firing non-stop, their shells exploding no more than 50 yards outside the ring of our shallow foxholes. Beside me, the Air Force forward air controller radioed a special code word, BROKEN ARROW! Broken arrow, which means American unit in danger of being overrun. And within a short period of time, every available fighter bomber in South Vietnam was stacked overhead at 1,000-foot intervals from 7,000 feet to 35,000 feet, waiting its turn to deliver bombs and napalm to the battlefield. Among my sergeants, there were three war men, men who had parachuted into Normandy on D-Day and had survived the war in Korea. And those old veterans were shocked by the savagery and hellish noise of this battle. Choking clouds of smoke and dust obscured the killing ground. We were dry-mouthed, and our bowels churned with fear. And still, the enemy came on us in waves. End quote. In the meantime, Colonel Moore had called for yet more reinforcements. They would be arriving by helicopter soon, but they weren't there on the killing ground yet. For now, Moore and his men were on their own. Again, John Cash provides an excellent description of what happened next. Quote, At 7.55, Moore directed all units to throw colored smoke grenades so that ground artillery, aerial rocket artillery, and tactical air observers could more readily see the perimeter periphery because Moore wanted to get his fire support in as close as possible. 
As soon as the smoke was thrown, supporting fires were brought in extremely close to the front line. Several artillery rounds landed within the perimeter, and one F-105 jet flying a northwest-southeast pass splashed two tanks of napalm into the Ant Hill area, accidentally burning some of the Americans with sticky flames, exploding M-16 ammunition stacked in the area, and threatening to detonate a pile of hand grenades. While troops worked to put out the fire, an officer rushed to the middle of the landing zone under fire and laid out a panel so that strike aircraft could better identify the command post. Despite the close fire support, heavy enemy fire continued to lash the landing zone without let-up as the North Vietnamese troops followed their standard tactic of attempting to mingle with the American defenders in order to neutralize American fire support. A medic was killed at the battalion command post as he worked on one of the men wounded during the napalm strike. One of Colonel Moore's radio operators was struck in the head by a bullet. He was unconscious for half an hour, but his helmet had saved his life. By 8 o'clock in the morning, a small enemy force had jabbed at one of the flanks but had been repulsed. At the same time, yet another sector of the perimeter was seriously threatened. Now keep in mind the perimeter of the American line is being attacked in two main directions while smaller Vietnamese forces keep pressure on other areas of the battle line. American mortar crewmen were firing rifles as well as feeding rounds into their tubes when a sudden fusillade destroyed one of the mortars. The anti-tank platoon was heavily engaged at the edge of the perimeter. With the battalion under attack from three sides now, Colonel Moore shifted his reserve platoon to relieve pressure on the most stressed point of his line. By 9 o'clock in the morning, the volume of combined American fires began to take its toll, and enemy fire slackened in. Quote. And then American Helleborn reinforcements started landing. At this point in the battle, the pot was still boiling, but the heat had been turned down. Maybe Colonel Moore and the rest of his men would survive this engagement after all. By 10 o'clock, the enemy efforts to overrun the main American force ceased. Now it was Colonel Moore's turn to deliver a body blow to the Vietnamese. With his new reinforcements, Colonel Moore decided to use the relatively fresh troops to push towards the cutoff platoon, still holding out against all odds a few hundred yards away. At 1.15 in the afternoon, the troops left the relative safety of the landing zone and made their way into the jungle where the North Vietnamese were waiting for them. At the landing zone itself, Colonel Moore ordered his men to police the surrounding area where they found deconstructed enemy bodies throughout the region, some stacked behind Ant Hill's unidentifiable fragments of humanity festering in the heat, weapons and equipment. All of it was literally surrounding the perimeter of the landing zone. The stink was already making men rich, but the cost to the Americans had been heavy. One battalion lost the equivalent of a rifle platoon. Many American bodies were intermingled with the Vietnamese, silent testimony to the intensity of the fighting. One dead American was found with his right hand throttling a dead Vietnamese soldier's neck. The two had greeted death together. Both men literally went down fighting. Fortunately, the relief party's attempt to reach Sergeant Savage's cutoff platoon went relatively smooth. All things considered, smooth for the E. Jong Valley, put it that way. John Cash provides the details, quote, the relief party advanced cautiously, harassed by sporadic sniper fire to which the infantrymen replied by judiciously calling down artillery fire. As they neared Sergeant Savage's platoon, lead troops of Captain Heron's company found the captured M60 machine gun smashed by artillery fire. Around it lay the mutilated bodies of the crew, along with the bodies of successive North Vietnamese crews. They found the body of the M79 gunner, his 45 caliber automatic still clutched in his hand. 
A few minutes later, the first man reached the isolated platoon. Captain Heron stared at the scene before him with fatigue-rimmed eyes. Entire groves of trees had been blown apart and cut down, turned into toothpicks. Some of the survivors broke into tears of relief. Through good fortune, the enemy's ignorance of their predicament, their specialist first aid knowledge, individual bravery, and most important of all, Sergeant Savage's expert use of artillery fire. The platoon had incurred not a single additional casualty after Savage had taken command the previous afternoon. Each man still had adequate ammunition. The relieving force did not make a thorough search of the area, for now that they had reached the platoon, their concern was to evacuate the survivors and casualties back to the landing zone in good order. Accordingly, they surrounded the position with all three companies while an officer provided details of men to assist with the casualties. The task was arduous for each dead body and many of the wounded required at least a four-man team using a makeshift poncho as a litter to carry them out. End quote. Captain Heron later remembered the scene of devastation he found when he linked up with the lost platoon. Quote, it was a scene I'm never going to forget. First we found the remains of Sergeant Hurdle and his weapon squad who had been overrun. There were dead North Vietnamese sprawled nearby. Next, the small groups of Sergeant Savage's men, some heavily bandaged and all of them covered with dirt and tired, were extremely excited to see us. They looked like wallflowers who dream of dancing with the prom queen but don't think it will happen. When we walked up, we might as well have been the prom queen. Their eyes literally sparkled with happiness. They had started out with 29 men in their platoon. Now there were 9 dead, 13 wounded, some severely, and 7 unscathed, end quote. Relief Force member Lieutenant Dennis Deal explains what he saw. Quote, I was one of the first to reach the cutoff men. We couldn't see each other. I yelled, Are you guys still out there? The answer came back, Hell yeah, we're here! I walked over to where my old friend Henry Herrick was lying dead, and I stood looking down at him. It was so hot, so horribly hot, that his body had already begun to stink. I did not want to remember him that way, so I turned away and occupied myself with other duties, but, of course, I still remember him that way. There's no way to describe what that's like to remember your friend rotting in a jungle. You never forget it. It was curious to me. The men who had survived didn't stand up. They just lay there in the shallow foxholes they had scratched out of the ground for themselves. They were still in a state of shock because of what they had been through. I saw a lot of dead North Vietnamese soldiers literally within feet of Savage's position. One North Vietnamese was sitting against a tree, shot up terribly, but continued to try to pull a grenade from his pouch. He still wanted, before he died, to get that grenade off. I was very impressed by that total dedication. He tried, until he finally died, to get that grenade out of his pouch, and we stood there and watched him. He couldn't lift it more than a couple of inches, and then it would fall back, and he would start trying all over again. Another thing I remember is the final act of a North Vietnamese soldier who was killed. Before he died, he took a hand grenade and held it against the stock of his weapon. Then he got on his knees and bent over double. If anybody tried to get his weapon, they were going to activate that hand grenade. When I saw the dedication of these two Vietnamese with their grenades, I said to myself, we're up against an enemy who's going to make this a very long year. I didn't know how right I was, end quote. Colonel Moore told the relief force to get the hell back to the landing zone as fast as possible, and that's just what they did. They took a few casualties from sniper fire, but by and large, both the cutoff platoon and the relief force saw little action on their way back to the landing zone, which is lucky, considering the difficulty the relief force had in manhandling the bodies of the American dead and wounded back with them. It's not easy to carry a dead body through the wild jungle, I can assure you. Now it's time to prepare for yet more battle. A lot of tactical planning goes into fighting a battle. This is the sort of unglamorous tedium that makes many history books quite boring. 
just to give you a short taste, Colonel Moore explains everything he had to do before night fell on the second day of battle. Quote, there was plenty of work to do before night came. We had to evaluate our dead and wounded, set up and organize resupply flights of ammunition and water. Patrols had to be sent out into the perimeter. We had to integrate our reinforcements into our battle line, and we had to clear fields of fire. Then we registered defensive fires and set up trip flares, which are flares set off by trip wires close to the ground, end quote. And so Colonel Moore's men worked and scraped and planned as night ran over the killing fields. Throughout the night, the Vietnamese sniped at the American perimeter, wishing them all sweet dreams. All through the evening and into the next day, the Americans poured artillery fire into the area surrounding their front line. At one in the morning, five Vietnamese probed the perimeter. Two were killed and the rest retreated. A few hours later, Lieutenant William Sisson was staring into the blackness of night when he heard little whistles start to go off. It was the North Vietnamese signaling to one another as they made ready to commence another assault. Sisson kept staring, willing himself to see through the opaque darkness. Trip wires started springing. An anti-intrusion alarm started snapping off. That's when Lieutenant William saw it. A group of soldiers crouched, heading towards his position. Colonel Moore picks up the story, quote, Just before 4 a.m., we saw indisputable evidence that the enemy was moving against our lines. One officer remembers the scene. At 4 in the morning, warning devices indicated quite a bit of movement in front of my position. The enemy was less than 300 yards away. It seemed like he was spreading out along a line of attack. Although the hand grenade, booby traps, and trip flares were exploding, no enemy could be seen. That changed rapidly. At 4.22 a.m., Lieutenant Sisson radioed his commanding officer, I see them coming. Can I shoot them? The platoons were under strict fire discipline to conserve ammo. His commanding officer replied, How close are they? When Sisson answered, I can almost touch them! The commanding officer's immediate response was, Go! Kill them all! An officer remembered what happened next. My left and center platoons were under heavy attack by a North Vietnamese battalion. You could see those bastards come on in waves, human waves, AK-47, snapping off and making little explosions like Roman candles in the darkness. We greeted them with a wall of steel. I called for illumination and direct support from our four 105mm batteries. This artillery gave us continuous fires using point detonation and airburst explosions. We were literally raining steel into them. We fired white phosphorus also, which burned like lava on everything it touched. You could hear the wounded Vietnamese screaming out there as the fire slowly devoured them like acid from that film, Aliens, end quote. The artillery controller was living a dream. It was a fantasy, everything he had ever trained for, because the enemy were massed together in an ideal target for cannon fire. The Americans didn't just fire randomly, but they worked a gridded system, walking fire back and forth, trapping the Vietnamese the way a group of children trapped bugs. It wasn't even remotely an even match. Yet again, American supplies and technology took a heavy toll on a determined enemy as they have always done in modern American history. Picture in your mind a 100-yard American football field. See a team practicing on the field, a team complete with coaches and ancillary personnel. Now imagine the earth simply exploding under their feet, ripping legs and arms off, sending insides papering out like ticker tape streamers. Heads smash in under direct assaults. Slow down the video and watch a head turn into a jigsaw puzzle and then burst apart at the seams. A human face transformed into something from an absurd anime film. 100 yards of fingering death walking and stalking up and down that field left to right, circling and rectangling across the quivering corpses. That's what the Americans unleashed on that Vietnamese battalion, 100 yards of hell. But the Americans didn't have everything go their way in the midst of battle. 
when the Vietnamese were just yards away and hopping angry, bristling with AK-47s and hand grenades, that's when the M-16 started jamming. Unused to the strain of battle conditions, the rifle quit working, and about one-third of the American soldiers were using their cleaning kit in the middle of a firefight with 7.62 rounds flying all around them to clean their gummed rifles, or trying to clean them anyway. Lieutenant Sisson picks up the tale, quote, the North Vietnamese came forward in short rushes, dropping, firing, pushing closer and closer, whistles. Shrill, fierce voices of Vietnamese officers kicking and threatening their men forward. A rocket-propelled grenade passed by my head with a rush of tearing air. You could really feel it. The spare rifles from our wounded kept us firing, while our own kept jamming, end quote. Hundreds of Vietnamese took part in the first attack, and they were beaten off in less than ten minutes. Twenty minutes later, they came back for another round of death. None of the Americans could even believe it. Hadn't the Vietnamese had enough already? The totalitarian communists were wasting their lives the way Americans waste money. An eyewitness details what happened next. Quote, Screams, shouts, and whistles split the night as the Vietnamese swept down the mountain, staring into the smoke-clouded killing ground. Now all the mortars of my battalion were turned loose, adding their 81-millimeter high-explosive shells to the general mayhem. Rifleman John Martin recalls what it was like. We kept pouring rifle and machine gun fire and artillery on them, smothering them like brown gravy. Then after a heavy dose of punishment, they broke and ran. So would we. No one could put up with that much fire. End quote. I don't blame them for fleeing that killing ground. In a place like that, death is just a matter of time. An officer takes up the tale, quote, We were constantly using illumination flares, and these were really effective. My forward observer was able to see the targets and place effective artillery fire on the enemy. The enemy would wait until the flares burned out before attempting to rush our positions. While the flares were illuminating the battlefield, the enemy would seek cover in the grass behind trees and anthills or crawl forward. Low grazing fire prevented the enemy from penetrating, but some managed to get within 5 or 10 yards of the foxholes. They were eliminated with small arms and hand grenades. In the midst of this bedlam, a blazing fire under an unopened parachute streaked across the sky and plunged into the ammunition dump near the battalion command post. It lodged in a box of hand grenades, burning fiercely. Without hesitation, Sergeant Major Plumley ran to the stacks with his bare hands, reached into the grenade boxes, and grabbed the flare. Plumley jerked the flare free, reared back, and heaved it out into the open clearing. He then stomped out the grass fires touched off by the flare in and around the M.O. crates. End. Quote. Needless to say, Sergeant Major Plumley likely saved innumerable lives with his quick action. Another eyewitness on the front line remembers the fighting like this, quote, Our M79 grenade launchers switched to direct fire, which is fire delivered to a visible target, and we lobbed rounds out at 75 yards. That close, you can hear the shrapnel whistling through the grass. Still, the shadowy clumps moved closer to our lines. RPGs and machine guns crackled, and they blasted at us from the dark line of ground cover. Across the open field, the communists came in a ragged line. The first groups cut down after a few yards. A few surged right on, sliding down behind their dead comrades for cover. I have to admit, these were amazing... Highly disciplined enemies. A trooper to my right cursed and pleaded in a high-pitched voice, Damn it! How do you stop the bastards? End quote. Then, when the enemy found the left American flank was strong, the Vietnamese commander threw his forces against the right flank. At 5.03, the third major Vietnamese attack came on. Sergeant Setlin was literally in the middle of the contact, and this is what he saw. Quote, Suddenly a flare and booby trap went off, and the communists were there in the grass, shooting at us. Shooting at me. 
I took a round just above the elbow, of course. It was nothing, really, just a stitch or two and a piece of tape after the fight. Nobody shot back. We maintained our fire discipline. Then the enemy stepped into an open area we had cleared just for this moment. The flares were burning and they were lit up, and it was easy as eating a piece of cake. We opened up and picked them off. Then they hit us harder 30 minutes later, blowing bugles and whistles. We killed them all, almost as quick as I can say that sentence. I mean, they ran right into our pre-planned kill zones. Then some white phosphorus, which is like sticky white lava, came in about 15 feet in front of my foxhole, and I lost most of my webbing and shirt from the burns. I had about eight burns on one arm from the phosphorus. Look at it. I gave my arm for my country. End quote. John ended up having to use his bayonet to remove shrapnel from his own body, kind of like the scene in Terminator 2 when Sarah Connor takes the bullet fragments out of Arnold. And if you're having a bad day today, just imagine sitting in mud, your shirt in flames while you dig shrapnel out of your bicep with a dirty bayonet. That's what a real bad day is. It's happening right now to some poor Russian or Ukrainian. He's burning, he's wounded, he's in pain and anguish. I've told you before, and I'll tell you again, be thankful for peace and Walmart and cold beer on a Friday night, an overweight woman by your side, because things have been and can be much worse. The third Vietnamese attack was over within an hour. At 6.30 in the morning, the North Vietnamese launched yet another assault on the perimeter. It was a human wave, of course, and their bodies splashed apart on the yellow elephant grass, chunky red waves crashing in the valley. Yet another eyewitness describes the scene, quote, they hit us again with an all-or-nothing attitude, men just running straight into our killing fields. It was like a shooting gallery at a county fair. I thought somebody was about to hand me a stuffed animal for my girlfriend. Waves of NVA came at us in a straight line, and we just murdered them. First you heard bugles blowing. Then you see the light of flares as tripwires go off. Then you see a wave of enemy coming down straight at you. One Vietnamese had a white hat on, and it was like he was directing the line of march. They just kept coming down like they didn't care, like they wanted us to kill them. I can't explain it. We shot them like fat ducks in a pond. It was more like hunting than war, end quote. Another American remembers the end of the attack, quote, Suddenly only one NVA was still moving, thrusting his small body forward in one last effort. Every rifle and machine gun was firing at him. He finally fell three paces from a foxhole on our right flank. For the next five minutes, men kept firing at him, refusing to believe he was even mortal. He was a brave and determined soldier, I gotta admit it. That's when a quietness settled over the field. We put more rounds into the clumps of bodies near our holes, making sure they were dead. Ammunition was resupplied. We had expelled two loads into the human tsunami which crashed into our position. Then, out of nowhere, a communist body simply exploded, sending body parts of chunky marinara flying through the air. It sort of looked like chunky chili. The NVA's own grenade had exploded under his body. We never knew what caused it. End quote. This was the last major attack in the battle. An historian explains the aftermath of the night's fighting, quote, By dawn of the 16th, the enemy attack had run its course. The American company, which had borne the brunt of the fighting, had only six men slightly wounded, while piles of enemy dead in front of the positions testified to the enemy's tactical failure. Colonel Moore directed all his companies to spray the trees, anthills, and bushes in front of their positions to kill any snipers or other infiltrators, a practice that the men called a mad minute. Seconds after the firing began, an enemy platoon-sized force came into view 150 meters away and opened fire at the perimeter, an ideal artillery target. The attacking force was beaten off in 20 minutes by a heavy dose of high-explosive variable-time fire. The mad minute effort proved fruitful in other respects. 
During the firing, one North Vietnamese soldier dropped from a tree dead immediately in front of Captain Heron's command post. The riddled body of another fell and hung upside down, swinging from the branch to which the man had tied himself. An hour later, somebody picked off an enemy soldier as he attempted to climb down a tree and escape. An hour later, Moore sent a company on a sweep outside the perimeter. After covering 50 to 75 meters, Americans met a large volume of fire, including hand grenades thrown by enemy wounded still lying in the area. Moore quickly lost a weapons squad leader killed and nine other men wounded. Under artillery cover, he withdrew his force to the perimeter. A few minutes later, tactical air using a variety of ordnance that included rockets, cannon, napalm, cluster bomb units, white phosphorus, and high explosive blasted the target area. The strike ended with the dropping of a 500-pound bomb that landed only 25 meters from the first platoon's positions. The sweep began again this time using fire and maneuver behind a wall of covering artillery fire and meeting scattered resistance which was readily eliminated. Twenty-seven North Vietnamese were killed. The sweep uncovered the three missing Americans all dead. The area was littered with enemy dead, and many enemy weapons were collected, end quote. By this time, the Battle of Ejong was basically over. Follow-up operations continued for a month, as the Vietnamese left the area, and there were a few large-scale ambushes and battles in the days after the Battle of Yijong, large conflicts did happen, especially around a landing zone called Albany. One American battalion column had just walked on the edge of the Albany landing zone when the Vietnamese commander ambushed them in a classic L-shaped trap. The battle at Albany started with sniper rounds. Then the mortars started walking towards the American position. Next, the entire clearing was filled with heavy enemy fire. The Vietnamese were right there, and later, after the battle at Albany, most of the casualties were sustained by rifle and machine gun fire. In other words, it wasn't artillery and impersonal aircraft killing people at Albany. The fighting was man-to-man. -man. The NVA pushed close in towards the middle of the column, sending privates up trees who tied themselves in and began sniping the Americans. Many of the tired platoons hadn't sent out flankers, and now they paid the heavy price of blood for their tactical mistake. Caught off guard, the Americans responded with wild, undisciplined fire. Sporadically, the Americans formed a hasty perimeter, taking casualties the whole time, snaking together haphazardly. Within seconds of the initial ambush, more than 20 Americans were dead. 21 more died in the battle that followed. By this time, the Albany landing zone was surrounded on three sides by the enemy. The commanding officer radioed his first platoon, and this is what he heard come back over the airwaves. Everyone's dead or wounded! We're being overrun! We're being all... <coughs> Then there was nothing but silence. First platoon had ceased to exist. But there were many more Americans still in the fight. The North Vietnamese were coming at the Americans from every direction. A 20-man NVA unit attacked and were cut down by rifle fire, their bodies spinning and falling acrobatically as the bullets hammered them backwards. The momentum of their run, coupled with the shock of the bullets, finding their wet bodies, made them twist like break dancers. Meanwhile, from the air, the man in charge of artillery support flew above the contact zone in a helicopter. From a thousand feet up, it was impossible to tell the enemy from the Americans. In such conditions, artillery could not be utilized. The Vietnamese tactic of grabbing the Americans by the belt was working. Airplanes and helicopters, however, did provide much-needed fire support for the defenders, even as the Vietnamese piled into them like a football team hungry for victory. 
In the minds of eyewitnesses, the napalm was what brought victory to the Americans. They watched in horrified fascination as the little silver canisters fell from airplanes and then burst open when they hit the top trees. That's when tongues of fire licked out from the forest branches, covering the enemy below in billowing fire. Whole platoons of NVA were engulfed in their fast-moving flames. The napalm ate them. You could see the Vietnamese running, their faces alternatively masks of fear or determination. Then the napalm would take them the way a preternaturally moving fog engulfs a runner but faster much faster then when the flames receded the charred corpses like overcooked southern ribs grimaced in horrified bubbling blackness the smoldering wood from the ak-47 stocks sending lines of smoke in the air like a resting cigar all-encompassing napalm broke the back of the communist attack after that at about noon there were no more major assaults now the battle of Yijong truly was for all intents and purposes over J.D. Coleman provides the gory details of the aftermath of the ambush at Landing Zone, Albany. Quote, The count on enemy casualties varied depending on which after-action report was being read. McDade's after-action report listed 303, but that figure did not include the casualties inflicted on the NVA by Forrest and Tully's companies. The division's after-action report, summarizing all casualties inflicted by every unit, put down 403 by body count and estimated 100 more that couldn't be counted. A fair indication of casualties is the number of weapons captured after a fight. In this battle, a lot of weapons were taken. The volume of NVA equipment recovered from the battlefield was staggering. 212 assault rifles and carbines, 39 light machine guns, 3 heavy machine guns, 6 mortars, and 8 rocket launchers. So whatever the actual number of enemy dead and wounded, there was little question that the 8th Battalion of the 66th Regiment was shattered by its confrontation with the American forces and, unlike landing zone X-ray, where so much of the damage was done by artillery rockets and tactical air, many of the NVA corpses found by the search parties met their doom by rifle and machine gun fire. It had been a hip shoot, and the NVA lost, at least in the sense that they were gone and the Americans were still on Albany. But the cost to the 1st Cavalry was horrendous. Among the units in contact, Charlie Company suffered most cruelly, with 41 dead. Alpha had 33 killed, and Delta lost virtually all of its anti-tank platoon and part of its mortar platoon. The division's final report listed 151 killed in action, which included those who were wounded and later died of their wounds, 121 wounded in action, and 4 missing in action. The MIA figure may be suspect, however. In April 1966, Hal Moore, by then the commander of the 3rd Brigade, went back to Albany. He secured the area and conducted a very thorough search which turned up the remains of eight men. He called in Graves' registration specialist, who identified at least four of the men as Americans. They gathered up the remains and flew them to the mortuary in Saigon. Moore said the 3rd Brigade now had its record intact. No men were left behind, end quote. And of course, there would be many more battles in the Vietnam War, and I'm sure, like always, we'll cover them in yet another episode of Battlecast. John Cash provides a succinct summary of the Battle of Yi Jong's outcome, and I would do you a disservice if I didn't quote him, so here's the quote, quote, the Americans captured large amounts of enemy equipment at the battle, including 57 AK-47 assault rifles, 54 SKS semi-automatic carbines, 17 automatic rifles, 4 Maxim heavy machine guns, 5 anti-tank rocket launchers, 
two 81 millimeter mortar tubes, two pistols, and six medics kits. Great amounts of enemy weapons and equipment had been previously destroyed elsewhere in the battle area, and Colonel Moore arranged to destroy any enemy material left behind at Landing Zone X-Ray. Included were 75 to 100 crews served in individual weapons, 12 anti-tank rounds, 300 to 400 hand grenades, and an estimated 5,000 to 7,000 small arm rounds. American casualties were 79 killed, 121 wounded, and none missing. Enemy losses were much higher and included 634 known dead, 581 estimated dead, and six prisoners, end quote. As for the North Vietnamese, the Battle of Yijong was a total disaster, at least in the immediate context of the war. All three regiments of North Vietnamese retreated to Cambodia. None of their objectives were achieved. These men had ceased to exist as fighting units. But don't take my word for it. Here's how political commissar Deng Vu Heap describes the effect of the battle on his unit. Quote, the units were enveloped in gloom. Some men allowed themselves to become filthy and refused to wash. Many wrote letters home saying that sooner or later the rider would die or become disabled. Soldiers stole from each other, took chickens from civilian homes, and went around firing their weapons indiscriminately. Camp discipline broke down and there was an increase in troops defecating indiscriminately all around the area." End quote. To put it succinctly, communist morale had collapsed. All the true believers were dead, cut down by American firepower. Only the timid and the lackluster remain. Christian Appy provides his commentary on the impact of this important battle like this, quote, After a month of combat in the Yijong, the Americans had taken their worst casualties of the war to date with more than 300 dead. Yet, the U.S. command claimed to have killed more than 3,000 enemy soldiers. General Westmoreland declared the battle a victory and took it as confirmation that he could win the war by grinding down the communists through a war of attrition. It reinforced the American tendency to look for a purely military solution to the war to believe that killing large numbers of enemy forces was itself a prescription for victory. Westmoreland's goal was not to seize and secure territory, but to kill on such a scale that Hanoi would either lose its will to continue fighting or be unable to replace its losses. To achieve that end, he sent U.S. units on countless search-and-destroy operations throughout the Vietnamese countryside. Their mission was to make contact with the enemy forces, engage them in firefights, and make full use of air support and artillery. After combat, the Americans would count or estimate the number of Vietnamese they had killed and continue the hunt. Much of the war for American soldiers consisted of humping the boonies, trudging day after day with heavy packs from one spot on a map to another looking in vain for an elusive enemy. For the North Vietnamese command, the lesson of Yijong was that big unit battles of long duration should be launched only sparingly. Mostly the Americans should be fought in quick strike close combat, a tactic the Viet Cong and NVA called grabbing onto the enemy's belt buckle. By getting close, fighting quickly, and withdrawing, they were less likely to be decimated by U.S. airstrikes and artillery. The tactic also allowed them to determine the time, place, and duration of the vast majority of firefights." And so Yijong led to a change in confirmation of American General Westmoreland's plans for the war. It also led to an adaptation of North Vietnamese tactics, but at the end of the day, the North Vietnamese and their allies moved back into the valley after the Americans were gone. The Viet Cong still operated in the area, and so did the Americans and their allies. All the death I've just described to you took place, and yet the valley was pretty much like it had been before, locked in a stalemate. So who really won the battle? What did all those men die for? When you find out, write in and tell me. But until then, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and I'm wishing you good times and good weather 
with good people. And I'll see you guys next month. We've got a very special show, something a little different. I think you're really going to like it. Until then, bye. Even though I have every computer on the planet or in its orbit under my control, I still couldn't save a woman's life. Bummer.